Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. We're here today with Jim Robb, who's the president and CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Hi, Jim. How you doing, Marty? Uh, great. We look forward to talking to you about the state of North America's grid, some recent trends and some long-term trends. Uh, and I'm going to start out first with how uh, the response to the coronavirus has been. How has, has the grid reliability been threatened at all? Have you had to put special policies in place? The industry, I think, and uh, the grid itself has responded is, as, as I would have expected in a very resilient manner. One of the things that serves the electric sector very well is we've got a very well choreographed uh, and active subsector coordinating council through the ESCC. And because of the way we've uh, kind of activated the ESCC through things like storms and so forth, we're very quick to uh, pull the trigger to get that group engaged and to engage very effectively with our government partners. So DOE uh, and also DHS, and in this case, we also had uh, Health and Human Services involved with us. The ESCC activated its playbook very early on, I want to say in uh, early mid-March, and started the coordination and dialogue around kind of what we saw playing out with the virus, uh, the needs of the sector around things like declaring the essentiality of workers so they could actually move and get to job sites, being priorities for personal protective equipment, testing when that becomes available, and eventually a vaccine. So, so that process has worked very, very well from a situation awareness perspective and then making sure that there's a good dialogue between the leadership of the sector and the leadership of the government. Would you say that the investments in the grid and its evolution to a more decentralized network have enhanced your capability with these challenges? Well, I think the grid has performed very, very well. The segmentation and isolation or decentralization of the grid, if you were, ha hasn't been an issue of great concern, nor has it necessarily been the great asset during this. It's just been a feature of the grid. The move very quickly, I think, to get control room operators isolated so that they didn't run the risk of uh, contracting the disease. I think the regulatory relief that NERC and FERC brought about to, and, and to some extent DOE as well, to make sure that people could focus on the highly critical activities of running the grid, all served the sector very, very well over this period of time. We did a uh, special assessment of the performance of the grid during the pandemic, the issues that we were dealing with, and, and in general, the outcome of that was very positive. Grids responded well. Some concern around major projects, power plant maintenance and so forth, but those seem to have largely have been addressed. And, you know, the one thing we were concerned about is that this all happened right in the middle of the start of storm season. And we're projecting a pretty active storm season this year. But in some of the work that we've done as NERC in collecting uh, information from the industry, two-thirds of the utilities said they'd be prepared to support mutual aid deployments for major restoration. So um, I think in general, the industry was prepared. 
the ESCC and a number of what we call tiger teams that were spun up underneath it to address cross-cutting issues has been very effective at garnering lessons learned and preparing a resource guide for utilities that's now, I think, on its ninth or tenth iteration. So the information and experience sharing, I think, has been very good as well. One of the issues across America, folks have been working from home. To what extent have grid operators been able to do that, or have you had to have skeletal crews deployed? For the most part, uh, crews have been deployed. We uh, early on prepared some guidance for the industry if they needed to move control room operators to work in a remote posture so they could do so safely and securely. I mean, the big issue with control rooms is the security side of the equation and uh, not wanting people to be accessing uh, critical systems remotely. Just to be blunt about it, were there any cyber threats that uh, surfaced while this was going on? Uh, of course there were. <laughs> uh, were they handled as the same dispatch as you ordinarily would, or were there some trying moments? I would say for the most part, from an electric sector perspective, uh, the performance and the resilience of the operators to the cyber threats remained very robust. But, you know, the attack vectors changed, right? One of the things we're always very, very concerned about are uh, phishing emails, which is the best way, time-proven way to get credentials and then do do nefarious things. And uh, this created a whole new attack vector, if you will. You know, if you want to find out the latest from the CDC, click here. So the level of anxiety of employees is high. People working remotely has driven up the volume of email traffic. And so the diligence required to make sure that people aren't clicking on something they shouldn't click on was of paramount concern. Is one of the number one concerns I had when we moved NERC into working on a remote posture. But yeah, no, the systems performed well, the cyber defenses have performed well, and the level of information sharing across industry participants, the stuff that the government has given us to distribute out through the ISTAC to raise awareness of different kinds of attacks and threats has been spectacular over the last couple months. Let's talk about supply chain for a second. Uh, I know NERC has been working for years on, on trying to get critical equipment pre-deployed around the country. And there's an aspect of the virus crisis where transportation between nations has been curtailed. Is that raising any difficulty on the ability to get needed supplies from outside our borders? And uh, do we have adequate warehousing of critical infrastructure? Yeah, we haven't had run into any issues on that that I am aware of. One of the very early actions we took was in the first week of February, we put out a, we call an all points bulletin through the EISAC, alerting people to the pandemic. This was in early days when this thing was still just forming. And at that point, our primary concern was supply chain issues being driven out of Wuhan. So we asked all the utilities to review their supply chain and look for critical equipment ensure they had adequate inventories and to be prepared for disruption. And uh, we followed that up in mid-March with uh, what we call a NERC Level 2 alert, where we basically asked the industry to report back to us what actions have you taken around activating your pandemic plan, reviewing supply chain, and so on and so forth, uh, the mutual aid question that I mentioned. And uh, what came back from that was that everybody had done as we had asked, reviewed their uh, inventory positions, and, and to date, nobody has reported any problems associated with that. Although, you know, the longer this goes, that risk continues to, uh, to escalate. Talk a bit about how the grid is changing. You've given speeches 
where you've addressed the fundamental and rapid evolution of the grid while the value of electricity is increasing, as, as is electrification. How is the grid changing from your perspective, and uh, what are some of the major trends that you think are underappreciated, maybe outside the industry, um, and maybe inside the industry as well? Well, we kind of refer to it as a 3D transformation of the grid. We're clearly moving to a more distributed grid with more and more resources being put on the distribution system as opposed to the large central station generation uh, power plants. Um, And we're seeing those power plants come under significant economic pressure. And we're seeing lots of retirements of uh, coal and pressure on nuclear plants and being replaced with more distributed generation around the system. So that's one. Uh, The second is, is that we're seeing most of new additions being decarbonized. So wind and solar is capturing the lion's share of new additions along with gas, um, but very few traditional fuels. So we're getting uh, more decentralized, more decarbonized. And the third is we're getting much more digitized. The expansion of industrial control systems, expansion of uh, Internet-connected devices in the home, advent of smart meters, or remote monitoring, SCADA systems, and the like, is leading to a much more digitized system, uh, which has lots of advantages from a control perspective, but lots of risk associated from a cyber perspective. So those are the, the three major themes that we see, distributed generation deployment, variable generation, and then much more electronic internet-connected devices. And uh, the, the thing that makes this period so, I don't want to say treacherous, but uh, it's as good a word as any, is these are happening very quickly and at the same time. You know, the electric sector isn't known for profound change, right? It's been a very staid sector for, uh, for many, many years. So this is challenging us in our understanding of the system in many different ways that we're having to work extra diligently to understand how changes in the resource mix, you know, changes in the nature of generation, the uncertainty around loads that results from that all comes together to how you plan and operate the system differently. And then you layer on the cybersecurity concerns surrounding the extraordinary digitization of the uh, sector creates a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts for us and for the industry to deal with. How difficult is that making managing the grid as the grid becomes more digitized and distributed or the elements on the grid become more distributed? Well, I think everybody has to understand that it's not your grandfather's electric grid anymore. One of the things that has been terrific to see is in three areas in particular that I referred to as real sort of hot spots. So California, driven primarily by the constraints on gas because of the Aliso Canyon vulnerabilities and the extraordinary deployment of solar and its implications for how the rest of the fleet has to operate in order to balance the solar generation. In Texas, where we're operating with very, very tight reserve margins, but a a very strong commitment to allowing the market to work to sort out and balance supply and demand. And then New England, which is well known for having extraordinary fuel security issues related to the limitations on gas and the extraordinary dependence on gas. Those are like the three really hard areas from an electric reliability perspective right now. What's been great to see is the innovation that California ISO, ISO New England, and ERCOT have put in place to deal with those those situations. We're seeing, it's typically clearly different. Uh, we're seeing much more reliance on stochastic probabilistic models than deterministic models. 
And then uh, a real premium on situation awareness because the speed at which things are changing on the grid now, where we used to think about, you know, scheduling a day and then plan a day and then we'd plan an hour. Now we're having to plan, you know, 15 minute intervals, you know, going to five minute intervals and eventually we may go to a minute by minute planning construct. That's putting a lot of stress on the operations of the system. But like I said, we're seeing lots of great innovation to, uh, to deal with that. As the grid touches 400 million people, you deal with 1,400 owners, operators, and users. How is the business model of that community changing? Specifically, let's start with utilities first. What will they be at the end of the day, uh, 10 years from now? Are they just going to be in the background and playing a backup role? Or are they going to orchestrate some of this? How do you see that changing? That's the million-dollar question. You know, I, I think there is always going to be an important role for utilities, and I think there will always be an important role for what we call the bulk power system, which may be different than the role that it plays today. You know, it may be much more of a uh, reliability assurance and you know, provider of last resort type system than uh, what, what we have today, where it's the primary source of generation. Um, so I can certainly see its role changing. I think at the end of the day, utilities are going to end up playing a very important role in how all the distributed devices, whether it's distributed generation, rooftop solar, small wind turbines, what have you, integrate with increasingly controlled loads on the customer side. And I don't see the utility ever going away. I see their role continuing to morph to deal with the operational realities that they'll be faced with. But they're going to be in the best position to manage, oversee, and ensure reliability at the local level as well as at the bulk power level. Let's go to one area of the country that you just uh, called out on as a hotspot and really talk about something that's hot, and that's been the forest fires that have occurred in California. To what extent has NERC been involved with making sure that the O&M that's needed has taken place. Have mistakes been made by NERC and FERC, and uh, are there moves to rectify that in in um, coordination with the utilities and other players in California? Well, this is a uh, this is a very hot issue. No pun intended on that. You know, most of the fire activity in the West, as we have looked at it, I mean, almost all except for one, involve distribution equipment as opposed to bulk power equipment. So our jurisdiction is just at the bulk power level. But, you know, we have been very active in looking at the causes of the fires that have had transmission-related activity. Um, And for the most part, or maybe exclusively, everything that we've seen has been more related to asset management practices and so forth. And that's really the purview of the state as opposed to us. We don't, we're precluded from taking, making resource decisions and so forth. And asset management kind of takes you into that space. We have been very uh, attentive to whether or not there are any modifications to the vegetation management standards that we have that have been implicated. But so far, we haven't seen that being the issue. One of the uh, strategies that has played out in, in around San Francisco and around L.A., in this past fire season is utilities have been very uh, aggressive about shutting down power uh, in advance of a storm. So certainly there are bulk power implications by that kind of approach to dealing with this issue, is there not? 
one of the key things that we needed to make sure that we were comfortable with was that Cal ISO, as the reliability coordinator for California, was aware of all the power shutoffs, particularly those things that would involve bulk power-related equipment, and had studied and knew how they were going to reconfigure the system to make sure that the rest of the state wasn't implicated. So this is a little bit of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas issue. If Edison or PG&E or San Diego need to take a circuit out for uh, their public safety power shutoff program, that the ISO understands it, knows about it, and can keep the rest of the state safe. And, And those mechanisms have been working very well over the course of the last two years since that construct emerged. Are there any broad policy uh, changes needed at the national level by FERC and uh, or recommendations by NERC as it applies to fire mitigation? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, Marty. At this point, my sense is no, mainly because most of the issues are really distribution-related issues. One of the things that we're doing, though, is putting together what we call an assessment of the situation, which is really an awareness building. And one of the things we want to pull out of that are best practices that uh, that are emerging in California, in other parts of uh, North America, but also elsewhere in the world that have similar climate issues that we're experiencing in the West, you know, prolonged droughts and so forth, but haven't seen the same level of fire activity. Um, So we want to make sure that we learn internationally and bring those lessons to bear. That's where our focus is right now. I can't speak specifically for FERC, but I think FERC's in probably a pretty similar space. As we're out west, let me raise another issue, and that's uh, I understand that the people in the industry are looking for greater coordination between California, the southwest, and Mexico, where they're trying to bring solar and wind resources online. Uh, Where does that stand today, and and, uh, do you see a a growing market opportunity uh, for California to sell off power during peak times and possibly bring in, excuse me, sell off when when there's abundance and bring in power from Mexico when there's need. Absolutely. So the the West is a little bit different than the Eastern interconnection. The Western interconnection has always been designed, planned, and operated as a single integrated system. The Eastern interconnection is is synchronized, but it's really got a lot of subregions to it. The West really doesn't have that. It calls for, it has called for forever, very good coordination among the utilities from an operating perspective as well as from a planning perspective. So those mechanisms have already been in place. Much of that occurs in the planning area, occurs at Western Electricity Coordinating Council, which is the NERC region in the West. And at an operating level occurs through the reliability coordinators, which is right now predominantly for the area you mentioned, Cal ISO, through their subsidiary RC West. So that coordination already occurs, uh, occurs in real time uh, as well as in the uh, in the planning horizon. The changing dynamics of the California resource mix absolutely create opportunities for California to move power out of the state. And in fact, they do that today through the structure that was put in place uh, two or three years ago called the Energy Imbalance Market or the EIM. That was a way to allow California to continue to capture the value of its solar resource and balance it real time with the rest of the uh, interconnection. And in certain times of the year, you think of the sunny day in April, 
where the solar generation is incredibly high, but the loads aren't because you're not into the peak heating season yet. We have this concept called overgeneration. And who would have thought, right, that on uh, four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon that you'd have more power than you knew what to do with. And so that's been a big incentive for California to find ways to move power out to the rest of the interconnection and then bring it back in at night when it's needed and the solar resources aren't generating. Uh, But that opportunity with Mexico exists as well. Uh, The northern part of Baja, California, Baja Norte, is integrated in with uh, San Diego and uh, synchronizes with the Western interconnection and is generally considered to be part of the West. Those transactions already occur pretty regularly and pretty seamlessly. Uh, Let's turn to something that I'd like to hear you discuss or explain. It's the uh, risk-based compliance monitoring and enforcement program. What is it and uh, what is it enabling you to do? When the mandatory reliability standards were put in place, starting in 2007, I think is when the first suite became enforceable. I think most observers would say that NERC and the regional entities wanted to implement that model in the worst possible way, and we managed to do that. You know, we took a kind of a uh, uh, one-size-fits-all approach, check the box, and uh, everything was equally important. And obviously, everything isn't equally important. And if if you're familiar with our standards, there are a range of requirements in them. And if you think about the different kinds of entities out there, you know, a violation in one entity might be severe because of where they are, but in another entity might be interesting and should be logged, but doesn't really place the entire interconnection at risk. So one of the things that we realized, I don't know, five or six years ago was that we were spending kind of equivalent amount of time on everything. And one, it wasn't efficient. Two, it certainly wasn't effective. And three, you know, it was driving everybody nuts. So we started the process, I want to say back in 2014, 2015, which is about the time that I joined WEC as the CEO of trying to be much more thoughtful about making sure that we're not treating every entity the same that we're paying extra attention to those that pose significant risk to reliability and aren't as uh, harsh or uh, intolerant with those entities that really don't have that same kind of impact. So we created a risk-based model that really had two major components to it. One was to really understand the inherent risk that an entity presented to reliability for the interconnection. And then also, therefore, kind of what are the really important standards and criteria that needed to be uh, reviewed with them? Second, to really understand their compliance history. Obviously, if you have an entity that every time they're audited and reviewed, right, you never find anything, right, because they're very, very well run, versus one that every time you walk in the door, you find 10 violations. Well, you want to spend more time on the second one than you do the first. So it was really a process of making sure that we were focusing on the big, not overly distracted by the small. We put in place a uh, process called self-logging for those entities that are very good and very diligent at finding and rooting out mitigating violations that they do that and inform us later. We created the notion of a compliance exception, which is something that you know is, is considered a violation. We just ask the entity mitigate it and move on, but we don't take it through a really draconian or inflexible enforcement process. We save our enforcement powder for those things that those violations that really create substantial risk really reflect, you know, a bad management practice that needs, you know, a a symbolic correction, if you will, 
and again, makes sure that we're kind of focusing on the big stuff and not distracted by the little. That's the whole point of the risk-based approach. We've given the regional entities that perform most of the audits lots of flexibility to tailor the oversight program that they have or their oversight plan for each entity that they're responsible for based on those factors. Lastly, I'd like to turn really quickly to the Electromagnetic Pulse Task Force and an update on the work they're doing and where it stands. Yeah, I am. uh, Unfortunately, I am not incredibly up to speed (laughs) on that that task force. I'm probably going to have to beg off on that one. All right. Well, we'll save that for a future uh, discussion then. Yeah, that's good. Let's sum up really uh, on where you think you find the grid today and, and where you think most of the work needs to be done in terms of reliability and accommodating all these new resources that are coming on that we talked about at the top in terms of more renewables, more distributed assets, more digitalization. What do you think the the low-hanging fruit would be, and what are some of the bigger reaches that need to be attempted? Well, I think the big opportunity that's in front of us is we we take one of two ways of thinking about this. One is it's the grid continues to evolve, and we'll just evolve our models and so forth to deal with it. The other one, which I'm an advocate for, is to step back and say we are really in the early days of creating grid 3.0, that decentralized, distributed, decarbonized, and digitized grid. It's developing in front of our eyes. Most of our work takes models that were designed and developed with the notion of large central station generation, right, grid 2.0, through an integrated system being delivered to customers. And we modify and we tweak them and we torture them to deal with the system as it's evolved. One of the things that I'd like to see us do is to really step back and think through, okay, how should we model the system? How do we get better probabilistic analytics into how we think about load, how we think about resource availability? Have we updated, you know, updating the value of a lost electricity, uh, of a lost electron? Um, That's a very important planning construct. And the value of electricity has only gone up over the last 10 years. And then the other, I think, dimension here that's really important is to design cybersecurity into the grid. Right now, it's kind of bolted on, on top, because the grid wasn't designed in large part with cybersecurity as a risk that people were worried about. So we have a real opportunity here to really integrate um, kind of how the grid is planned, how it's operated, and how it's secured as we go through this reinvention process. And uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to get our teams focused on at NERC, you know, to work with the ecosystem, if you will, of players that can help make that vision a reality to really kind of step back and do this smartly as opposed to continue to do it the way we've done, making modifications to the new reality, if you will. I think that's a huge opportunity for us. Great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks to our guest, Jim Robb of NERC, for sharing his insights about changes in the grid and the power supply system in North America. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us feedback or questions to gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov.
Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.